Well, good morning. It's good, good to be back. Uh, I always wait till the lights come on in case you're wondering, because until then, people at home don't see anything. So if I start talking to you, then it'll cut in like midway. So if you're ever like, why is he just staying there awkwardly for like 10 seconds? It's because I'm soaking you in. I'm deciding. Maybe I'll go home. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's not at all it. So this, this week, as I was reading and preparing for the sermon, actually, two weeks ago, as I was reading and preparing for this sermon that was supposed to be preached last week, um, I stumbled over this interesting tidbit in, in one of the commentaries I was reading, and it was the history of the word maverick. I don't know if anybody knows this, this, this whole thing, but, or what a maverick really even is. I'm sure you've heard the word. Uh, but maverick actually comes from a, a real person uh, named Mr. Maverick. His name is Samuel Augustus Maverick. Uh, and in the 1800s, this was a lawyer living in Texas, uh, and, and Samuel Augustus Maverick was a, a different kind of guy. He marched to the beat of his own drum. Uh, he was a rebel in a lot of ways. He's one of the guys that signed the Texas Declaration of Independence. Uh, and really famously, he was known as, as a cattle rancher, aside from being a lawyer, that refused to brand his cattle. And so he would drive all the other ranchers nuts. Because everybody else, right, you brand your cattle so if it gets lost or goes across the fence, you can kind of see who's who. If there's stolen cattle, you can kind of reclaim it. He just didn't want to do that, and so he didn't and marched against the beat of the rest of the community. And so eventually, cattle that were unbranded became known as maverick cattle. And then over time, it developed into being this idea of someone who goes against the grain, right? Someone who doesn't fit into the mold of the society that's around them, and kind of somebody who sets their own path and forges their own way. And so now we have what we call mavericks. So if you have friends that are like, they never seem to do what society says they should do, right? You now know, they're, they're a maverick, right? But that's where it came from. And it's an appropriate kind of discussion because today's passage in a lot of ways is, is kind of a maverick passage. It, it breaks the mold of the cycle, not the cycle of judges that we'll get into in a second, but the pattern that we've seen with judges being raised and how the Israelites come to beg for forgiveness and repentance and all those kinds of things. There's some changes that we see in this passage from the others that we've encountered so far, right? And so the, the real big one that we see, for one, is that women get the prominent role in this passage. So let's hear it for, for the ladies. This is a female empowerment passage in some ways. A lot of love for the ladies. Next week, I'm going to ask for the fellows, and there'll be one guy in the back. Like, uh, that's how it goes, right? That's just whatever. No, but I appreciate it. So women get this prominent role. And, and the other thing that we see is everything kind of doubles in this account, right? So we had like one judge, one major enemy and his army, you know, all these kinds of things. This time we have two protagonists in Deborah and Barak. Barak or Barak. I tend to say Barak. I think you get to choose which one of those you feel is more up to you. But we have two of them. We also have two enemies that are listed. We have the king and then the general who the scripture will spend most of the time on. We have two of really everything. We even have two actual separate accounts of this cycle. Right? This is the only cycle in all of Judges that gets told twice in a row. Chapter 4 is the account of this Deborah Barak judge cycle. And then after it's over, chapter 5 is the same account in poetic song form. Right? So they go through all they go through, and at the end of it, they sing a song about what they went through. And it's this poetic kind of song slash poetic verse, and we get to see that. So if you're an artsy kind of minded person, 
you could read it chapter 5. And it would kind of tell you the song of what happened with them. You know, let me tell you the tale. Uh, and people have tried to put this to music over times. I, I looked up a couple different ones, and I decided that for, like, you should just, you can't unhear it once you hear it. So, like, don't try to hear it. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> like, it's not going to make the top 100 billboard charts anytime soon. So, but they do have these accounts that are separate. And so we have two of all these different things. We have two women of significance, as we'll see. Uh, not just one. And so everything comes in twos, nice and clean. And so this morning, we're going to primarily look at Judges 4. Uh, but before we go there, just a quick reminder. We've seen this every, every week so far. Just a reminder of the cycle of Judges, right? Israel commits sin. They're walking not in the ways of the Lord. And so the Lord gives them up to somebody. There's always a somebody. A certain amount of time goes by. This time it's 20 years. And when that time is up, then they cry out because they've finally had it. The Lord raises some kind of judge or deliverer that fights for them, that defeats the enemy, and then they enjoy a relative time of peace for as long as that judge is alive, and then the whole cycle starts over, right? I know we look at this every week, but it's important that we just let it sink in that every time these stories happen, and the detail of which we've been diving into, and the Israelites go through this struggle, it, it's, it's crazy to think that they never learn. Like, but, but, but just, just imagine, I mean, we, when we say we suffer for our faith, right, there's like, you know, well, we weren't able to gather for a year, so we had to do it online, which is bad. I'm not trying to belittle that. But, like, these people were being oppressed by foreign military powers for decades, and then the Lord magically delivers them, and he does it over and over again. You would think by, like, the third time, it would sink in and they would get it. But I keep bringing this cycle up because every single week when we look at one of these, it just goes back to where it was and worse, right? And it's the spiral downward. And so as we look at these passages and we get lessons from them and we learn in modern day what we can take away from them, we do have to understand that the number one takeaway in every single week that we are in Judges is it's just going to get worse, right? It just spirals down, right? We learn a couple little things in each cycle, but really every cycle is just to demonstrate Israel falls further and further and further away from God until there's like nothing left. Right? until at the end of the book they look just like the Canaanites themselves who they were supposed to be conquering. Right? And so that being said, let's take a look at our passage for this week. And, and we'll do something, we'll go verse by verse uh, and kind of stop along the way and describe some things because it's a long passage, but it's actually worth telling all of it. You can't just pick a little bit out. So let's start at the very beginning. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Say that three times fast. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So we start out, and we notice that the story picks up after Ehud's death. And if you've been reading along in Judges, one of the things we're not going to cover today is that between Ehud and this week, we have another judge in there that we're not going to mention, right, in, in, in its own separate sermon, because it's literally just like a little verse, and that's Shamgar. Shamgar gets screwed. He doesn't get his big account or whole chapter. It's literally like, and then there was Shamgar, and he defeated these guys, and now we're on, right? 
And so one of the things we have to understand is that there are more than just the six judges that we will look at, but there are the major ones, and there were some minor ones along the way. And we even have here in the, in the accounts that it's after the death of Ehud that they started to do evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And so we can presume that Shamgar's story happened while Ehud was still in charge. Right? It's not really this whole full cycle in and of itself. It's just they were enjoying peace. There was a minor conflict. He came in and cleaned it up, and then we moved on. Right? And so if you're reading that, and you're like, well, Vince, you skipped Shamgar. I did, but I didn't. Okay? So we have this one. It picks up after his death. Uh, and then God, because they're acting evil again, gives them into the hands of this king, Jabin. Jabin is not the name of the guy. We don't know the name of the guy. Jabin is a title, like a royal title, kind of like Pharaoh, right? We have all kinds of mentions of Pharaoh in scripture. They're not all the same guy. It's whoever is the Pharaoh at the time. It's like Mr. President, right? And so we know this because Jabin was defeated way back by, by, um, by Joshua when we started these things. About 100 years earlier, Joshua defeated Ejabin. Right? And so this is just, just a, another king. Scripture doesn't really give us the name of him, but he tells us that he was the king of this area. He had this, this fortified city of Hazor where he ruled. And just an in interesting aside, um, Hazor today still is visible. Like the ancient ruins of Hazor are actually the largest ancient ruins that we can see in all of modern Israel. It was right on what we today see as the border between Israel and Lebanon. And I actually have a little bit of a clip for you. You can actually see these are the ruins of Hazor. Uh, so we do a little flyover. This is at the very top of a hill, so fortified in the sense of high up. Um, I would not want to be climbing up that hill to conquer the city of Hazor, especially with the weapons that you had during that time. Right? It wouldn't be an area that I would want to attack. But it's interesting, and I show you this not just because it's cool, but because it's, it's important that we understand that when we look through Scripture, we're talking about real, actual history. Right? Like, this is a place that we can go to today and walk around in and see. And so when we talk about King Jabin, who was ruling in Hazor, this is where he was. He was right there. And that's their water system that they built at the time that they were there. And we can still see it today in our modern context. Right? So that's just, it's a fun aside, but it's important that we understand that. We're not just looking at these stories as like illustrative lessons that help us with some kind of purpose. Right? These are real people that were really oppressed by a really wicked king who had a really wicked general. And so Jabin ruled in Hazor, but he's not the main guy in the story. The main guy in the story that's the evil one is Sisera. Right? We see this in some countries today. There are places in this world where the president or the prime minister, whoever they call them, is, is really just a figurehead in some ways. Right? He doesn't have the power. It's the military generals and leaders who have the power. Right? And so you'll see countries that have kind of taken over by a military coup where the generals come in and they just clean house of, of the people that are supposedly in charge. And so what we see in Judges 4 is Sisera is the guy who has the real power in this story. And he is the one who is cruelly oppressing the people. And Sisera is not a Canaanite. It's not a Canaanite name. He, he came in with these people. They call them the Sea People. They came in during the Iron Age and migrated to this area. And the reason he's the general is because Jabin 
align himself politically and created an alliance with Cicero and many others. That's kind of how he rose to power. He had all these alliances with powerful leaders that, that worked together to keep everybody else under their thumb. Right? And so we're dealing with the general when we're dealing with this passage and the people that are raised against him and the victory and all these kinds of things that we'll talk about. Cicero is a formidable enemy. He had 900 chariots. At this time, the chariot was the most modern weapon of, mod of warfare that you could imagine. Like, there was nothing better than a chariot. It's not like someone had a gun that they could pull out or a nuclear weapon, right? It would be the equivalent of today saying, and they had an arsenal of 6,000 nuclear warheads. Like, what are the odds we can go against them, right? Chariots, we think of them as just, well, great, they had carriages to, like, walk on or be ridden on. It was, it was an unbelievable military force and might, the likes of which no one in that world at that time had seen. And so the Israelites are under the thumb of this guy for 20 years, and it says that they were treated cruelly. Right? It wasn't like when they went to exile that they just lived and occasionally had some struggles, but were able to live and prosper to some degree among the people. It says that they were treated cruelly for two whole decades. And finally, after living the way that they wanted and being under that oppression for that long, they cry out to God. And here's the change that we see. The word repent does not show up. The people aren't repentant of what they've done. They don't go to the Lord with a sense of sorry to say, we need to turn back to you, please help us. They're at this point, they're just expecting him to be their cosmic savior genie. They're like, listen, this guy's been on us for 20 years. Um, like, can you do something? Like, we need your help. Well, are you going to live for me? No, I mean, we really just want you to, like, come in and take care of this and then let us go back and do our, do our own thing. Right? That's the attitude with which the Israelites have started to come and approach their God. And we see this because at the end of the passage, when we get to the very end of chapter 5, what we don't see is a people turned back to the Lord. All it tells us is that when this whole thing is over, the land enjoyed peace. Like the Lord let them have some peace for a couple of years. Right? It's this continuous downward spiral, right? Initially they return and repent, but now they're to the point where they're just like, God, just can you like, I know we haven't cared about you, but can you do something about this guy? It's getting uncomfortable. Like we're, we're finally, we don't really acknowledge you, but things are bad enough that like if you can help us, I guess we'll call on your name for help, right? That's the demeanor and attitude with which the people come. But still the Lord does something. <clears throat> Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, if you want to name your kid something, was judging Israel at that time, but that's not too late if it's a boy, Lapidoth. I know we have some names picked out, but let's do it. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So here comes Deborah. And what we don't get in this passage, as opposed to others, is an account of how Deborah was raised. Right? We don't, there's no, and the Lord summoned Deborah as a judge and chose her in place. She's just there. 
And we're told that she actually, for the first time in the book of Judges, is doing the thing that gave the judges their name. She's judging. People are coming to her for disputes, kind of like they did in the days of Moses before he created, you know, courts and things of lower nature. And so she is kind of this high, highest court authority. People are coming to her in the region that she is for judgment pronouncements on various things that they're going through and struggles that they're having and disputes that they're engaged in. And so she's just here. She's judging. She's doing the work that a judge would do. And then she comes and she summons Barak. We don't know a whole lot about Barak. His name means lightning. So he's the lightning judge or vindicator or whatever you want to call it. But he's the son of Abinom, which means pleasantness. A lame name. Right? Like you're, you're lightning and your, your dad is pleasantness. Right? Uh, and what we learn if we look into the history of, of family lineage is that Barak is not like a military leader. He is not a war guy he has no, not trained in, in any essence. He doesn't have a family history of being a warrior. He's just kind of the son of pleasantness, in a way. And so he's, he's summoned by Deborah. And Deborah, she doesn't tell him, hey, the Lord spoke to me and wants you to do this. She said, hey, hasn't the Lord already said this to you? And so what we have is her reminding him. She's profiting. She wouldn't have, how would she have known this unless she was a prophet? But she's saying, hey, like God said this to you. Like a while ago, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, well like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> like, you, you had the Lord come to you and say, hey, get these people from these two tribes, 10,000 men, bring them where I tell you to. I will bring Sisera and his people to this river, and then I will give them to you. Like, we've been oppressed. I don't know if you've noticed, but things have been pretty cruel for a de- couple decades. Like, how about we get on that? Well, yeah. And so she's calling Barak out for not having acted on what the Lord has already supposedly told him. And the way that he acknowledges her, he doesn't fight her on it. So we can assume that the Lord has actually already come to Barak and asked him to do this, but that he has thus far refused. And so Deborah spurs him on and says, look, listen. She kind of gives him a kick in the teeth. Right? We all need that sometimes. Sometimes our spouses are like, get off the couch. Like, Weren't you going to do that last week? I had COVID, Brenna. I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> and so that happens, and Barak's response is what we would expect it to be. He said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Female empowerment. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Then we get this little aside. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'anaim. Not how you pronounce that. Which is near Kadesh. And so Barak hesitates. He's not entirely unfaithful. He's not a total coward. But he's like, if if the woman comes with me, I'll I'll do it. And so she agrees, but she says, look, because you're not fully committed, because you're not willing to just go when the Lord calls you to, because you apparently need me to come hold your hand, um, at the end of this whole thing, you're not going to get any glory for any of this. It's going to go to a woman instead. 
And we assume that that woman is Deborah, because so far she's the only woman that has showed up in the passage, right? And so they make their way, they summon their people, they have their manpower, they're getting ready, and then we get this little aside about Heber the Kenite. Um, We're told that he separates from the rest of the Kenites. The Kenites were aligned with Israel, tells you that he is descended from Moses himself, right? But Heber decides to be a practical-minded guy, and he's looking at this Sisera and his chariots, and he's going, there's going to be a war, and it's not going to end very well for the Israelites. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my tent and my family, and I'm getting out of here, and I'm going to go as close as I can to the enemy's side of things, and I'm just going to align myself with Sisera and Jabin. I'm going to hedge my bets with who I think is going to come out victorious so that when this whole thing is over and the dust settles, my family's okay, right? And so he walks away from the Israelite people. He's essentially just kind of on his own, and he makes it very clear to Jabin and the people that he's not, he, I'm not with them. I'm, I'm with you. Like, I think you're way better than these guys. So whatever you need, I'm just going to pitch my tent at the edge of your camp, and my loyalty is to you. I pledge fealty. And so that's what we see here happening. And that comes in much more significantly as we go past this passage. So here's what happens next. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Kishon, just like God had said he would. And Deborah said to Barak, up. <laughs> I just love this. She already had to yell at him once. They're like at the edge of battle. And she's like, like, will you like, right? Will you just go up for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him finally. And then this is, we've been building up to this epic battle. This is all we get. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. That's it. We don't get any cool epic battle. Like, it's not bloody like Ehud. It's just this like, nonchalant description of, well, the Lord gave them all into the hands of the Israelites. Right? And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoim, and all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Okay, so here's the battle. We find out what takes place. The Lord causes there to be victory. All right. When they start to move down the mountain, Sisera hears of this, and he moves his people accordingly closer to the river to prepare for battle. How did Sisera hear about this? Well, we can presume, and if we read through chapter 5, we see little hints of this, we can presume that he had the help of a spy, and guess who that spy is? The little guy with his family who's made his camp at the edge of their enemy territory, right? Most likely, he is hedging his bets, and he is helping Sisera, telling him where the people are, and to get ready, and to give him spy information like spies do. And so Deborah prophesied bluntly, and she said, hey, it's time. Go get out of here already. The Lord has told you many times now what he's going to do. We're, we're here now, like, Time to pony up and stop being a coward. And they go out, and it just tells us that, that everything just ends. They're just given into the hands. And we have to go to chapter 5, to the song form of this story, to get a little bit more detail. We get a hint. It says this in Judges 5, 20 and 21. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. 
The torrents Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrents Kishon. March on my soul with might. So what we think happened, and this is kind of scholarly work, we're not 100% sure, we know that the torrents of Kishon, like the river rose, storms happened from the stars, right? The Lord magically, through, through the bringing on of some type of a storm, disabled the army of Sisera. Right? The best guess that scholars have is that the river, everything got so wet and so gross that the chariots got stuck in the mud and became useless. And so instead of 900 iron chariots, it was just a bunch of guys. And then he confused them, and then they just get crushed. Right? And so we get a little bit more detail of the battle here, but not, not much. The point is this. The Lord is the one who does all of this. Right? And so all the men of Sisera are completely annihilated. And then this, was that, this is what happens next. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Here he comes again. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. He was a spy. And Jael came to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him again. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, I love this part, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. <laughs> if you thought you weren't going to get gruesome, surprise, you still get some gruesome, right? So Jael and Heber are in the hills. They hitch their tents. They're spies for Sisera. Sisera shows up, right? And when he shows up, obviously worn from battle, kind of on the edge of his life, right? She immediately realizes that the battle didn't go the way that they thought it would go, right? And so they're thinking, we aligned ourselves with the wrong guys. <laughs> Oops. Right, what are we going to do? She says, I, I have an idea. Come on in the tent. Let me protect you. Come on in, my you know, master or general or whatever. Get him something to drink. Get him comfortable. Lay down and put a rug over you. Find some rest. You know, um, if someone comes, tell them I'm not here. Absolutely. Go ahead. And then she presumably waited until he fell asleep. And then she took a tent peg and drove it through his head with a hammer and killed him. Right. Presumably to, again, line yourself with the people who are going to be the most helpful to you. Right? Heber the Kenite and his family are not good people. They are opportunists. They will kill whoever they need to to advance the good of their family. And when the people they were lined up with fell, they didn't want to get in trouble because if they would have come back to Israel, they would have been like, nope, not to us you do. But if they kill the general, that's a good thing, right? And so they switch who they're allied with in order to further their own cause. And then we get to the conclusion of this cycle. And behold... As Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with his tent peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So Barak comes to the camp. He's obviously he's pursuing Sisera. He's trying to have that battle himself, right? Because the two leaders 
are supposed to duke it out. That's how every good war movie ends. It's the big protagonist and the big antagonist in their epic sword fight. But it doesn't go that way. He gets there, and what has happened? A woman has already taken care of business for him. And so plot twist, a woman does get the glory here, but it's not Deborah. It's Jael, the wife of Heber, who's not worthy at all. Who's not someone to be praised or celebrated, but in this case, she gets the credit for killing one of the most feared war generals of all time in the history of the Israelite people. And then what happens after is it's just this very brief account that after this is all over, Jabin just kind of was subdued, right? Once your military's dead, well, there wasn't a whole lot left to do but go in and take over, right? And take over they do. By the way, this all happened in the north, right? We talked about Hazor being at the northern border of modern-day Israel, right? But if you go back to Judges 1, when they start having some victories, the first place they meet resistance is actually in this same area. And so there was already struggles here before the first couple of Judges stories even happened. Again, because of chariots. If you read Judges 1, you'll read that they encountered those people and weren't able to beat them back because of the chariots. And now they have finally accomplished what they weren't able to at the beginning. They have conquered the north. Right? And they're able to live in relative peace. And then here's the, the only kind of end that we get at this is that the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. That's the last verse of, Ju- of Judges chapter 5. Right? It doesn't say, and then the people turned to the Lord, and then the people lived according to the word, and then the people followed their God. None of that. It just says they enjoyed some relative peace. So what could we possibly get from this account for our own modern day? Well, number one, remember, every lesson that we glean from each individual cycle is secondary. Right? The primary thing is this. God's people continue to be evil. Over and over and over again. Right? No judge can end the cycle. And as we'll find out next week, this judge didn't end the cycle either. Right? Things just keep getting worse. They need a savior, and so do we. And so the primary lesson of judges is never we should learn from history or we should act more this way or we should be nicer to people or any of these kinds of things. They're side products. They're secondary things. But the primary thing, every single word you read in Judges should be, wow, we, apart from Christ, are really wicked, messed up people. We need Jesus. Right? That's, that's the point of, of not just this cycle, but every one of them. Right? If you get to the, the end of the application of the sermon, it's the same for all the weeks that we're getting together and talking about this book. But there are some secondary things that we can learn. And the first is this. God will do anything in his power to accomplish his purposes, right? God will do weird things through weird people. He will break the mold in some ways, and he is the one who gets every ounce of actual credit in this story, right? Barak is not a hero. He's, yeah, he's the leader. He's the general of the Israelites at the time, and he's the one who leads them into battle, but, like, he hesitates twice, and when he does go, like, I picture them coming down the hill and him just standing there with a sword, like, trembling, and then, like, confusion hits and the Lord just takes care of business. And then he's like, all right, kill the rest of them. I did something. <laughs> yes, I did it. Standing over a body that was already dead. <laughs> like, woo. But that's the point. It is not Barak who is the hero. It is not Jael who is the hero. It's not even Deborah who's the hero. She's probably the best one in the story. She's the only one who demonstrates a faithfulness 
and a willingness to, to go and do what the Lord is calling people to go and do. But God is the one who's doing it all. If you notice at the very beginning when, her, when Deborah and Barak are first talking, God actually is the one. He lays out the plan. You go here. You go here. I'm going to bring Sisera to this river. And then I'm going to give him into your hands by flooding it. So their chariots are useless. Right? Man contributes nothing in this account. Absolutely nothing. The only person who really did something of significance is Jael, and she did it out of selfish motivation so that her family wouldn't somehow be able to go on and prosper. She didn't kill him because it was the right thing to do. She killed him because she was scared. The Lord is the one who acts. The second is this. The Lord is, in some ways, the ultimate maverick. What do I mean by that? We love to read a little bit of Scripture and understand a little bit about who God is and think of the ways that he has acted and, and functioned in our life and in the life of the modern culture that we live in. And we like to put God into a box. And we like to think that God always acts the way that we expect him to. We like to think that God is somewhat predictable. And in some ways he is. Like his nature is unchanging. God will always love. God will always have mercy and justice and, and all the characters and the things that, that, that make God who he is. But God is not a God to be tamed. He is not someone that you can say, well, this is how he's always going to be doing this. Right? The Lord will use people that you would never expect to accomplish things that you would never expect in a way that you would never expect. And for us to say in modern context, well, God wouldn't do it. That, that's not how God could work. Is silliness and we need to get over it. Right? I don't think it's, it's understatable just how crazy it is that the Lord used women in this story. Right? Today, we say, yes, that's great, right? We, equality and, and empowerment, and we, it's, it's not even, at, at worst, it's something we don't care about. At best, it's something that we praise, because great, women get some credit in this story, too. They should, right? But back then, this was controversial stuff. Women don't lead in that culture, right? Women were property in that culture. And yet the Lord uses them to accomplish something, because the man that was supposed to in the story is a scaredy cat. The Lord is going to get done what he wants to get done, when he wants to get it done, and how he wants to get it done. And sometimes it might look a little different from what we expect. And our job as followers of Christ is not to question him, but to say, okay, that's how you work. I'm, I'm yours. I'm your follower. Right? I'm not your general manager that gets to tell you how to do your job. We like to do that with God. We say, Lord, I'm so glad you are the way you are. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing in my life. Could you do it this way? And like preferably this week, not next year, right? And, and yeah, I know that that person, you could, I know you're not going to use them to accomplish your purposes. That's exactly who he might use, right? If we learn anything from judges' accounts is that the Lord uses filthy people that are not worthy, that have hearts of stone, that are selfish, that have their own interest at heart above all else, and he accomplishes his purpose through them. Right? He raised up a woman who is self-centered and protecting her own family in order to crush the general who all of the Israelites couldn't handle for years and years and years and years and years. And she just drives a peg through his temple like that because the Lord called her to do so and used her despite who she is. And he can do that today in the lives of his people as well. Right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, 
We thank you for these accounts which are hard to, to reckon with sometimes. Lord, it's difficult for us to, to imagine that you use people that really aren't after your heart to accomplish your purposes. But you do. And we thank you for stories like this that, that tell us that you are a God who is a maverick who is not bound by human thought and creativity and understanding, but that you are a God who works in your own way in your own time. Lord, we pray that through your spirit you would empower us to live into and press into that time frame, that we would not be a people who want things our own way, but that we will be a people that come after your heart and your timing, that we look at what it is that you are doing and say we will get behind it wherever it takes us as the people of God and as this church, Stowe Presbyterian. We thank you for this book that reminds us of our need of a Savior. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness when we place our faith and our trust into human hands whether that be government or friends or wealth or security, Lord, our, our only safety and our only hope comes in you and what it is that you have for us in this life and in the next. And so we pray that we might be a people that faithfully follow after your ways and your paths, not begrudgingly, but with joy. Thank you for reminding us of our need of a Savior, Lord. We pray that as we go home, that we would be reminded of that every single morning anew as we read your word and you speak to us. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said,